and welcome to episode, episode 32 of the Wines Into the Weeds podcast with Tom Fox and Matt Kelly, where we take a deep dive into a compliance topic or issue. Today, we take a look at a really momentous 48 hours in the life of the FCPA and how it will move forward under the new administration, which occurred last week. It's encapsulated in a blog post by Matt Kelly entitled FCPA Pilot Program Extended and Much More. We take a look at the extension of the pilot program. We take a look at comments by Secretary of State Rex Tillerson in response to uh, a uh, retort by uh, President Trump regarding the FCPA. We also take a look at a Second Circuit Court of Appeals case in the Hoskins matter, which considers the scope and reach of the FCPA for those involved in conspiracies. We end with a short discussion of the firing, some summary firing of all U.S. attorneys last week, including Preet Bharara. Matt has an incredibly interesting conspiracy theory that he shares with us. The episode comes in at uh, just around 25 minutes. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly. Matt, welcome. Hello, Tom. It's always good to be here. Matt, we had a uh, really interesting week on uh, FCPA-related information and related information that came out. You blogged on it last week in a post entitled FCPA Pilot Program Extended and Much More. And I, I would just say the much more really is much more. So uh, we got a lot to, much more to talk about. So why don't you just uh, take us off? It, it was crazy because not only did we have a lot of FCPA news last week, we specifically had it within the period of about 48 hours. And on Friday, um, I happened to be stuck at an airport for a few hours, and I just started thinking about various things going on with FCPA. And just one, two, three, four. Um, clearly the most newsworthy, such that it is, I, th I think it's newsworthy, is that the FCPA pilot program, which was scheduled to have its one-year pilot expire on April 5th, uh, one of the acting Justice Department officials announced on Friday that that pilot program is going to continue until further notice. Um, let's be honest here. Probably it's continuing until further notice because there's still so much uh, in transition at the Justice Department that it really should not be up to holdover Obama administration appointees to decide what to do with this, but new Trump administration people are not yet fully in place. So I think the pilot program is extending just because nobody wants to make a definitive ruling on that when we're in this period of transition. That said, proper response for compliance officers is who cares this is a good idea for compliance officers it's been helpful to have and so if it's going to keep on rolling for a while more power to it um my personal suspicion is that this pilot program will eventually become a permanent fixture at the justice department uh, in how it handles fcpa cases i don't know that we're going to call it or what we might call it or if it might go away publicly, but exist in some sort of incognito, sub rosa, unspoken rules. But um, I think the principles of the pilot program are going to be here to stay, and they're certainly staying until somebody says they're not. So that was the first big thing. Well, and uh, actually, I thought that was a big thing, Mike, because 
uh, you're correct. The pilot program is scheduled to uh, to end its one-year pilotness uh, the first week of April. But I, I have publicly said, and I believe that this program has been a, a very big success. It really broke new ground with the uh, exception of com beginning to compile a lot of information the department had put out in various formats into different uh, in different places in one uh, location or one site. And some of that was the discounts that were given to companies for their extraordinary cooperation and extensive remediation together with self-disclosure in varying degrees and amounts and enforcement actions. The comments by not only uh, Compliance Counsel Wei Chin, but also Leslie Caldwell about the metrics that the department would look at in consideration around how much remediation was needed, how much remediation had been done, the state of a best practices compliance program at the time of uh, the incident in question, and whether or not uh, the Yates memo would absolutely positively um, co uh, control for uh, any credit for self-disclose, excuse me, any credit uh, that a company could receive, even if they did not self-disclose, it it added the the requirement of profit disgorgement. That was not really something new either. But uh, to have all this in one place, a compliance officer or outside counsel or you or me could go to for reference, I thought was a, a really good first step. And moving it forward, I think it's really in the interest of the department because they are getting a a, a sizable. Uh, something in return, which is uh, self-disclosure by a company. And if a company can have some assurance that they're going to be dealt with quickly, efficiently, and in a uh, cost-effective manner, leading to up to a 100% discount or a full declination along the lines that we saw uh, last summer in, er in early fall, I think it's something that's uh, going to be very popular. Um, Mike Volkoff, if he was on this, would probably point to the uh, Department of uh, Justice and I Trust Divisions program where uh, a uh, free pass is given to the first uh, uh, conspirator to come in. So there is certainly um, prior precedent for the DOJ putting a program in, in place for a specific section or a specific unit. And the uh, announcement by uh, Mr. Kevin Blanco last week did say that the program will continue in full force until a final decision has been reached on the utility and efficacy of the program and to the extent uh, with, uh, it should uh, remain in place with or without revisions. Um, so I hope the department will really use this opportunity to reflect that this has been a positive development, in my opinion, in the compliance community. They may tweak it with other um, other things, but uh, having something like this going forward, I think really moves the ball forward on compliance because it gives companies a real incentive to come in and self-disclose, and it gives the government a real incentive to deal with companies on a quick, efficient, uh, cost-effective basis. And you know, I would only add that I know that other parts of the federal government are looking at a knockoff version of this program, I think specifically around import-export and OFAC violations. I don't know for a fact where that pilot program may or may not be in existence or if it will come to pass, but I've heard rumors that they want to take the theory behind this pilot program and start cloning it with other types of misconduct and issues. You wouldn't do that if you thought the pilot program wasn't working. Right. And 
you know, consider the alternative here. What, we're going to go back to enforcing it more strictly and with less clarity? I, I just don't see that the Trump administration's Justice Department is going to move in that direction. That does not seem to be the, the tenor of communications we have heard from senior officials. So I'm, I'm very bullish about this. You know, I would agree. And I guess I would also add this pilot program really moved, uh, I think, Wei Chin and her um, ideas and thoughts about operationalizing compliance much more to the fore. Certainly, she had communicated those ideas in talks. Uh, Leslie Caldwell had talked about compliance council metrics by which uh, programs w would be evaluated. But this, to me, the pilot program document really for the first time synthesized down the operationalization, this need for a compliance program. And of course, we saw that really go to the fore in February with the evaluation of corporate compliance documents, which was released. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there was much more, as you said. So we it had was. some very interesting comments from Rex Tillerson. So you want to set the table on this one. This one's fascinating. Uh, yeah. Uh, so th uh, this is the more I think about it, this is sort of a good news or interesting bad news sort of dynamic. But uh, according to a column published in The Washington Post, I believe last Friday, March 10th, it was a profile of how much influence Secretary of State Rex Tillerson does or does not have in the uh, Trump administration. Generally, the whole tenor of the article is that Tillerson does not have much. However, for we compliance and FCPA enthusiasts here on this podcast, here's what we have is a snippet from that column where um, apparently sometime in February, Donald Trump was meeting with Tillerson and various other administration officials. And Donald Trump, as he often does, was ranting and raving and fulminating, uh, this time about the FCPA, where Trump was complaining that it was costing the United States billions of dollars and millions of jobs and all the usual rigmarole we would hear from the president. Um, but Tillerson dissented and talked about how he had walked away from an oil deal in the Middle East in his prior life as CEO of ExxonMobil. Uh, and the leader there in the Middle East had been demanding a payoff. And Tillerson said no, because he would not violate the FCPA. Uh, and that Middle East leader, we don't know who it is, then invited Tillerson back, where I, apparently they did ultimately consummate some sort of a deal. Uh, and the killer quote in this Washington Post article is uh, Trump turned to Tillerson and said, yeah, you did that just because you're Exxon and you get that. And Tillerson said, no, it did not happen because we're Exxon. It happened because we're American and American companies have a higher standard that people like. So if that is true, here we have Rex Tillerson, former CEO of the largest oil company in the United States and one of the largest in the world, coming to the defense of the FCPA in the face of Donald Trump. So we can cheerlead for that as much as we want. So this really, to me, bookends the uh, quote that Robert Gates had in his memoirs on duty, where he talked about uh, visiting with the king of Saudi Arabia and the king related to him that he wanted to buy arms from America because uh, if, although his ministers wanted to buy Russian and French arms, but he was afraid that money, Saudi money that should have gone to buy arms would go to the Swiss bank accounts of his ministers. And he was confident that if he bought American 
Uh, bribes would not be paid and money would not go to Swiss bank accounts. Here we have the business um, articulation for why the FCPA is good for uh, American business, and that is that companies, countries rather, understand that they want to do business with America. One of the reasons they want to do business with America is that we deliver a superior products and services, and by not paying bribes, uh, the money that would go to fully pay for those products and services goes to the company and is compensate compensates the company. So I find this a, a very heartening um, and actually a, a, a real justification uh, for um, having the FCPA in place in the first place. You know, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And um, I do think that many, many people within the justice or within the Trump administration, either in the secretary of state's office or in justice department or elsewhere, many people within the administration will agree that the FCPA is a good law. Even if sometimes they might say it has previously been zealously applied, they might dial it back. But I don't think there's very many people within the Trump administration who would say the FCPA is a bad idea and bribery is okay. The exception is that, yet again, we have proof that one person in the Trump administration, whose last name is Trump, he seems to think that the FCPA is a stupid idea and that corruption is okay. Now, before this, the only evidence we really had about Donald Trump bad-mouthing the FCPA was some interview he gave to CNBC in 2012 where he called it a horrible law, and we've all quoted that before. I personally suspect that he was just cranky that day, as he often is, and back in 2012, what was in the news? It was Walmart's FCPA scandal. Um, this is different. This was last month. Here's Donald Trump fulminating, as usual, about the FCPA with uh, no basis in fact that it does not cost us billions of dollars. It does not cost us millions of jobs. It may cost us some money and it may lead to some lost opportunity, but it's dirty opportunity. And it will cost somebody else somewhere in the world if we disregard the FCPA. I think that's what the president misses. He might view bribery as a victimless crime. Who cares? There's always a victim of bribery. It's just we here in the West, and especially we here in our towers in the 58th floor of Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue, we don't see it. Other people see it. Other people in emerging markets see it, and they don't like it. However, they have to live with it if we have this attitude. I, I do not believe that the administration as a whole is going to chuck FCPA enforcement out the window. I don't think they want to, and I don't think most people believe it's a bad idea, but I'm still not quite sure that somebody like Donald Trump really understands which end is up. And I, it's just, it was intriguing to see that clearly he's still chewing on this chew toy again, uh, that anti-corruption is not a big deal and we shouldn't bother with it. Well, and to your point about the Justice Department, that really leads into the next of much more because... Uh, we had a legal issue come up that uh, many, uh, uh, both in the, uh, certainly the FCPA defense bar, thought the Department of Justice took a very aggressive position, so aggressive indeed they lost at the trial court level on their position. So we're up in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, is that, uh, you think you could lay the table for us on that one? Yeah, I'll do my best because I will admit I had not paid much attention to this case until the last week or so. But uh, this deals with a British national 
named Laren, uh, Lawrence Hoskins, who works in Paris for the French construction firm Alstom. The allegation is that while he worked for Alstom, he may have helped Alstom's U.S. subsidiary concoct some sort of a bribery scheme for government officials in Indonesia. So therefore, the argument is, he should be liable under the FCPA, even though he did not set foot in the United States, he is not a U.S. citizen, and he did not work for the U.S. subsidiary that did this. If any of those three things had been true, maybe we would have a, a different story, but none of those three things were true. So as you said, this went to the district court, and the district court said, no way, the FCPA does not apply to him, and uh, the Justice Department appealed. And the appeal was only heard last week. So this happened after Trump administration lawyers, including Jeff Sessions, now attorney general, after they had come in. And in theory, if Jeff Sessions had not wanted this appeal to go forward, he could have put the kibosh on it. And he didn't. They are still taking the same aggressive posture that the Obama administration did, that the FCPA should apply even in this very long reach. Now, there will be other FCPA voices out there who would say that this is a ridiculous argument and it should not reach. Whether or not that is true, the fact for us here on the podcast is that the Trump administration's mid-level people enforcing the FCPA, they had a choice to slow roll or backpedal away from what the Obama administration had done with FCPA reach, and they didn't do it, which is not the case for other big inflammatory Justice Department issues where they have backpaddled away very quickly. If I, I believe that if Jeff Sessions had really wanted to step back from this case and take a different tone, he could have because he has before on other issues and he has not. And here we are. And that's interesting. You know, it really is because this is a, a, a novel issue. It's one that could seriously cut back on the reach of the FCPA, at least as that reach is viewed by the Department of Justice. And to have, a, a, and you correctly note in your uh, blog post that there have been uh, issues where the Department of Justice has uh, either reversed its position, uh, the new administration has reversed its position or declined to to continue uh, positions in court that they had previously held under the Obama administration. So we certainly have that precedent uh, uh, going uh, for the new administration. And to have this case come up, which is since uh, there are very few FCPA cases that make it to trial, let alone make it up to a court of appeals for that level of interpretation, to have the Jeff now Jeff Sessions Justice Department articulating and advocating it, such an expansive view, I think really uh, emphasizes your point, Matt, that uh, this Justice Department views the FCPA as critical moving forward, and they do not see the need to cut back on it uh, as yet. You know, even if they may in the future decide that, and they might, um, I look at this case and I also think that part of it is just um, enforcement and turf protection 101 here that this Justice Department, like any Justice Department, they would like the discretion to decide how far this law does or does not reach. And they do not want a court to step in and make that decision for them, which really is what's going on here. If the uh, higher appellate court does rule in favor of the Justice Department and we have this expansive reach, that does not necessarily mean that 
the Trump administration officials are now going to enforce it in the same way. But when you think about it, like, why would they not want that discretion, even if they never exercise it? So that might be some of what else is going on here. But for compliance officers, that would still mean more enforcement risk and less clarity about what uh, they may or may not experience on a case-by-case basis. So you'd still have to be on your toes if the uh, appellate court does rule in the Justice Department's favor, and who knows when that might happen, but that's where it is. The um, Also, I think it drives home the point that Mike Volkoff often shares which, with us, which is career prosecutors are just that, career prosecutors. And uh, yeah. Jeff Sessions, if you're a law and order guy, uh, you may have a, a reduced or somewhat uh, less view of civil rights or voting rights. But if someone violates a law, uh, you believe that that law should be uh, uh, that person should be prosecuted and the law should be fulfilled. So uh, prosecutors, uh, I think, are going to continue to want to utilize the tools that are available to them. In the context of uh, your analysis, I think you're uh, spot on, Matt, that uh, whether they use this type of argument going forward, they certainly want to have it available to them, and they're going to argue in an appropriate forum and hear the Second Circuit that uh, they should have the right to continue that wide discretion. So we have really three disparate uh, data points or uh, pieces of information, but I think they really add add up to demonstrating uh, where you started uh, your blog post and and that um, FCPA is probably not going to be cut back. It's certainly not going away. Compliance is not going away. Compliance programs are not going away. And to the extent that the department can really lead the legal effort, it will continue to do so, allowing people like us to talk about it, compliance officers to apply it, uh, just as we've done uh, over the past several years. Yeah, I I think that um, unless someone in this administration makes a decided push to you know, invest political capital in weakening the FCPA. Um, we're not really going to see much change in the practical insurance policies companies need of having an effective compliance program. The only person who seems to be really unhappy with the FCPA as a law, as an idea, is Donald Trump. And frankly, he's got plenty of other things that are burning down around him or other political uh, efforts he needs to pay attention to. Healthcare, tax reform, um, foreign policy issues, immigration reform. I just, I don't see that anybody anywhere has the bandwidth or the appetite to make FCPA reform really a big permanent legislative and executive change. Um, at best, the Justice Department might dial it down on its own, but they are not going to do that as a policy. They will do that on a case by case basis. A new compliance officer, you're not going to know which case it is until you're <laughs> up. So. I don't recommend that is a that that is a wise course of action. So uh, I would say we would need to end uh, this podcast uh, talking about uh, the summary summary firings of the U.S. attorneys. But you've already told us we need to do that in your blog post. So we should note that 46 U.S. attorneys from the Obama Obama administration were summary summarily fired on Friday by. Um, the new administration. And while I am certainly one to advocate an administration should be able to have their own people in place, and uh, this is not uh, unusual to have a turnover at this level, the political appointee level, 
the uh, timing of the firing some uh, two months into the administration, almost two months, I should say, coupled with the fact that uh, they were given less than uh, 12 hours to clear their desk out, certainly raised some eyebrows. But there was one notable um, exception, and that was Mr. Preet Baraha, the um, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York or Manhattan, who refused to resign and uh, was fired. So you want to pick it up from there, Matt? Well, I just I think it is interesting that um, Preet is in a class unto himself for several different reasons. Number one, he is the most prominent U.S. attorney in the country. Anybody who is representing Manhattan is going to be the most prominent U.S. attorney in the country. Uh, handles an enormous number of corporate com- conduct and misconduct investigations, uh, but specifically. The U.S. attorney for Manhattan is the person who would investigate the Trump campaign and the Trump business empire for any possible misconduct. And whomever that is, uh, is the person who really would probably make Donald Trump and some of his inner circle quite uncomfortable with the allegations around them. I happen to notice that this all happened only two or three days after news came out that Donald Trump's former national security advisor and top campaign aide, Michael Flynn. Turns out he actually was in the paid employ of the Turkish government all of last year, which he neglected to tell anyone. Um, And then finally, he filed a lobbying disclosure form uh, retroactively. I didn't know you could do that, but he retroactively told people last week he'd been on the Turkish payroll all of last year while he was trying to put Trump in office. It seems like misconduct or misbehavior of some sort to me, and it seems like the sort of thing that is worth a closer look, and Preet Bharara would be the one to do that look. And as soon as this news came out, Preet Bharara gets the boot. Um, I will leave it to other conspiracy theorists out there to string all those dots together. There will be no shortage of people who are eager to do so. Uh, But I've had the pleasure of meeting Preet Bharara multiple times myself. He is an outstanding public servant. He is a very good guy. If you are in New York politics, I have heard that um, for Mayor Bill de Blasio, he probably is not thrilled. He is up for re-election this year. That Preet Bharara now has some free time and might be looking for something to do. Um, So we have no uh, real insight yet as to what Preet's future may or may not be. But he really he had a lot of capabilities, a lot of talent. He was a good public servant. And who knows if we may hear from him again in the in a different sort of a context. Well, and let me just add as a postscript that uh, he, uh, the president, attempted to call him Friday night and uh, Preet, uh, properly recognizing it was a conflict of interest to have the sitting president call the U.S. attorney, uh, called and informed the chief of staff of the attorney general and asked them to contact the White House and and rescind the uh, request of the phone call. And um, I thought that would spoke very well. Mr. Baraha followed the uh, protocol precisely. Apparently, the uh, attorney general's office agreed with him, uh, his interpretation as well. So um, all very, very interesting. Once again, uh, I would just emphasize that the the, uh, U.S. attorneys serve at the discretion of the president, and he certainly has the the right to fire them. Uh, Doing it in that manner, I think, will lead to additional turmoil uh, because uh, given the um, lack of number of people the Trump administration has in line or in vetting for different positions, it may be well into the summer or spring before uh, some of these positions gets can get filled. 
and I recognize they're talented uh, professionals, uh, assistant U.S. attorneys uh, who are not political appointees. You can step up and handle these on an interim basis, but there's a reason you have someone as the head of an office, and that's to head the office, no matter what that office is. So uh, much like with the rest of the administration, uh, disarray abounds. Very true. And I suspect we will mention that again on some future podcast and some other week. I don't think this is going away. Well, Matt, really was uh, just a, a heck of a week uh, in the FCPA. Uh, every one of the points you raised uh, would, would merit probably a, a podcast on their own. But to happen really in 48 hours uh, just provides us with a, a, a very fast-moving scope to consider where FCPA is, where it's been, and where it may be going. And uh, if things continue at this pace, we may need to uh, uh, either blog more, podcast more, or bring on some more folks. I don't know which. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Matt and I would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments or would like to submit a question for our mailbag episode, you can reach Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us. It would help in our rankings and help us get the word out about this deep dive into compliance that Matt and I take on a weekly basis. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. Hoping you'll join us for another episode next week of Compliance Into the Weeds. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.